Hello everyone, I'm Crystal Nazelle and welcome to the second episode of the Teaching at PAU podcast, a podcast focused on pedagogy at Palo Alto University. Today we are very lucky to have Dr. Kimberly Balsam as our guest. Dr. Balsam is a PAU professor, primarily teaching in the PhD program, the director of the LGBTQ area of emphasis, and director of the Center for LGBTQ Evidence-Based Applied Research, or CLEAR. Our focus for today's episode is on an area I know we hold near and dear to our hearts, teaching diversity. Welcome, Kimberly. So happy to have you on today's episode. Thanks, Crystal. I'm very happy to be here. Now, to begin today's interview, please tell our listeners more about yourself, about your professional background, and current interests in relation to teaching diversity. Yeah, so I've been interested in diversity for a really long time. If I think back um, on my adult life, even going back to my undergraduate years at UC Berkeley in the 1980s, I was participating in um, anti-apartheid protests. And later on in my 20s, I got involved in feminist activism and women's studies, especially while I was doing my master's degree. Um, And I think my work on diversity deepened um, when I was in my late 20s and I came out as an LGBTQ person. Um, I think this process for me really raised my awareness of some of the nuances of what oppression looks like and how it manifests on a daily basis. And I think it also made me look at the flip side to look at some of my own unexamined privilege, especially white privilege that I really hadn't um, ever had to articulate or think about in, in such a deep way. That's one of the aspects of privilege is that when you have it, you don't see it as well. So I think really my journey over the last several decades has been um, one of exploring my own sexual and gender identity, but I've also been engaged at the same time um, in a process that's woven together with that of becoming a better ally, especially to people of color and other groups that I'm not a member of. And it's really, it's an ongoing thing. It's a work in progress. I I say I'm going to be working on it uh, for the rest of my life. Um, When I went back to school for my PhD in 1999, um, I really decided at that point that I wanted to devote my research career to studying the experiences of LGBTQ people. Um, And I've been doing so for almost 20 years now. And since the mid-2000s, that's included a specific focus on intersectionality and the stressors that LGBTQ people of color experience. In terms of teaching, um, I had been an instructor in the past, and then when I came to PAU full-time in 2012, um, I started teaching here full-time, mostly in the PhD program. I also teach an online master's class. Um, And I've really been working for all of that time to incorporate diversity into all of my classes. And again, it's a work in progress. I'm really interested in teaching diversity kind of in two ways. One is that I think um, we need to have courses and workshops and seminars that specifically focus on marginalized populations. And my example of that is my LGBTQ issues in psychotherapy class. But the other is that I'm working towards integrating diversity into all coursework so that every class we take helps our students to think multiculturally so that it really becomes the air that we're all breathing here at PAU. Similar to your experiences, I believe many of us can relate to this being a work in progress. So thank you so much for that. We've spoken about your own evolution concerning identity. Tell our listeners more about the shift you've undergone from focusing on LGBTQ identity to adopting a more intersectional approach. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, as I mentioned, some of this has been, for me, looking at some of my own unexamined privileges. Um, I think something that stands out in my mind is when I was first out there working as a mental health therapist with my master's degree, I worked at a community mental health agency where most of our clients were people really living in um, poverty. And I think through those sessions and through the supervision that I received, I really started to understand my own class privilege in a way that that had been invisible to me. And I started to understand how much um, socioeconomic status really shapes the way that we see the world. Um, this for me was deepened even further in some of my practica and my doctoral program and particularly working at the VA and seeing the role that the military plays in so many people's lives. Um, I think another part of that evolution has been for me moving beyond an idea of cultural competence to really thinking about a multicultural orientation. So that's really more growth and process oriented instead of uh, seeing competence as an endpoint. And I think with that goes this idea of cultural humility that we really need to approach other people with a respect and with willingness to hear their perspective instead of imposing our cultural framework on them. Um, Another salient thing for me, as you probably know, I'm ending, um, I'm coming to the end of a three-year term as uh, first president-elect and then president and now immediate past president of APA's Division 44. So Division 44 is the Society for the Psychology of Sexual Orientation and Gender Diversity. Um, and this has been a really wonderful role to be in. Um, and in this role, I had the opportunity to really engage both with the division, but just more broadly with LGBTQ communities. And I really became aware of the work that needs to be done intersectionally on white privilege and racism that occurs even within these communities. And so um, this is kind of my new thing that I'm most committed to in my professional service work. I um, co-founded with a colleague, Dr. Carlton Green, um, the Task Force on Racism within Division 44. And I've also been doing some scholarly work on intersectionality. My presidential address as uh, Division 44 president was um, about getting out of the box with respect to the gender binary, but also with respect to intersectionality. So really this idea that there's no single set of categories that encompass all of people's true experiences. So whether we're asking somebody to check a box on what their race or ethnicity is, or whether we're asking somebody if they're male or female, I think all of those things really limit our ability to understand what people's real lived experiences are. And so I really want our students to become lifelong learners at understanding how culture impacts people in all of its nuances and forms. I definitely value this idea of being a lifelong learner. I think that we're constantly striving to grow and improve ourselves at this institution. Speaking of, there are multiple layers here at the university where we can increase cultural competency and humility. Let's start with our curriculum. Do you have any thoughts about ways our curriculum across programs can encompass more cultural awareness and inclusion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we're already doing some things pretty well in this area, um, and we're definitely making efforts, um, which I really appreciate about PAU, but I think we can keep striving to do better. And so I think one thing that comes up for me is really broadening our understanding of cultural identity so that when we think of culture, when our students think of culture, all of those different dimensions of identities come to mind, racial and ethnic, 
immigration, social and economic status, sexual identity, gender identity, et cetera. So too often I see students sort of default to one or maybe two of these identities and, and not really thinking that culture um, is, is more nuanced or multifaceted. I also think I still sometimes um, hear from students that culture is most relevant for those with more of a minoritized identity or less privileged identity. And that's not true. Culture is relevant for all of us. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we also need to go deeper into this idea that not all identities are even the same or parallel. So for example, if we learn about what it means to be a sexual minority or LGBTQ person in society, some of that, some of the stigma and prejudice that people experience might be the same for somebody with a disability, for example, but there's some different issues that are faced. And so I think really getting those nuances is, is a step forward that we could take. Um, I really want us as an institution to promote um, intersectional pedagogy. I really want us to promote a, a deeper understanding of intersectionality in all of our teaching. And really this idea that we can't categorize on any dimension that we're all multifaceted. And with that, I think it's important to note that intersectionality isn't just about different identities, but it's really about power, privilege, and oppression. That's what's underlying an understanding of intersectionality. So it's not just, we all have a lot of identities, but we all have really complicated ways that power and privilege structures in our society impact us based on these identities. And I think the way that oppression looks is really related um, to intersectionality. Oppression isn't just based on a single dimension. I think part of that for us as an institution and especially as faculty is we have to keep scrutinizing ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can't just you know, rest on our laurels. We can't just say, oh, we're doing a good job, pat ourselves on the back. Um, and I think many of our faculty, myself included, need to just keep doing additional learning about diverse identities. You know, I think we all share that commitment to diversity as a value here, but we all have our blind spots and we all have our areas where we don't know as much. I think collectively as a faculty, we know a lot and we can learn from each other. Um, and I think you know, that having more discussions about that to help each other in that regard would be really useful. Part of that is to keep reviewing every year, every time we teach um, our syllabi and our lecture slides and our readings and keep looking for places to improve. I think sometimes we can get stuck and think, well, I've taught this course successfully before, so why not just stick with the same materials? But um, I think we have to, as we learn more and more about intersectionality, as we learn more about other identities, about other experiences, we have to integrate that in. And some of these fixes are relatively easy. For example, um, you know, sometimes in slides, or in readings or in lectures will say the phrase he slash she and I think it's pretty easy to just go through and always change that to they because that's inclusive of people with all gender identities. Um, other fixes might be more time-consuming so <clears throat> for example going through and updating readings to find content that's on more diverse populations even if that content isn't what's considered the gold standard on that topic or the most often read article, you know, I think we need to be bringing in content that does address these more diverse populations and that's going to take a little more effort. And I think another piece is that we should be training our students to be better advocates for marginalized people. They can be a part of the solution. Our students are going to be, our students at all levels in PAU are going to be out there after graduating 
working in systems and in communities that need to become more multiculturally oriented. And so it's really our job to provide them with some skills that they can take out there and make those places more multiculturally aware and oriented. Absolutely. And just as you've described, our training has a ripple effect spanning well beyond the PAU classroom and impacting the community at large. Now, circling back to how I phrased the previous question, I've used diversity, cultural competency, and humility so far in this interview. In our previous discussions, you've used cultural awareness and inclusion. What other words or phrases do you prefer to use when describing this area? Yeah, I think um, I really like this idea of a multicultural orientation. I think um, there's a new book that came out last year. Uh, Hook is the is the first author um, with some colleagues about cultural humility. And um, in that book, they talk about a multicultural orientation similar to a theoretical orientation. And I really like that because it's process oriented. It's not an endpoint. It's not a stamp of approval that I'm competent, but it's I'm oriented towards always looking for culture. Um, I think that really makes sense in how we're teaching about psychology and how we're teaching people to be clinicians and to do all of the work in psychology. I think as an institution, cultural awareness is a good term just to make sure we're constantly thinking about culture at all levels of our institution um, as we're hiring people here, recruiting students, developing new programs and evaluating how well these programs are working, we should always have an eye towards, towards cultural diversity. Um, and I think inclusion too, I like that word because it goes beyond just not discriminating, right? Because sometimes just, you know, quote unquote, not discriminating against underrepresented groups isn't enough. When a group has been historically oppressed, we have to go beyond that and look for what are the barriers, both big barriers and small day-to-day -day barriers to these groups being able to fully access and fully participate at all levels of our institution. Now that's a great segue to our next question. The classroom is a ripe opportunity to shape more civil discourse around diversity issues. Tell us about your approaches for handling these issues as they come up, including addressing power and privilege dynamics among students. Yeah, I think this is such an important question because um, our classroom environments are really always, um, they always provide ripe opportunities for discourse about diversity issues. You know, everybody comes into the classroom from a unique background. They have their own identities, their own experiences, and their own perspectives. Um, and some people come into that classroom having done a lot of personal work on understanding power and privilege, and some people just haven't even ever thought about it yet. Um, some people come in having been exposed to people that are really different from themselves in terms of race or ethnicity or class or sexual or gender identity. And some come to PAU and they've led a relatively sheltered life and they've been mostly around people who are really similar to themselves. I think this is all magnified right now at this moment in history. I think tensions are running very high in our country. Um, and people in many marginalized groups, people of color, LGBTQ people, people who are immigrants, um, are feeling threatened and devalued. And so I think this inevitably gets mirrored in our classroom environment. And it's really incumbent on us to think about how we approach this. So we really have our work cut out for us as instructors. I think we have to learn, teach, and model tools for having dialogue across difference in a respectful way. Um, 
we really need to come into our work with a respect for differences, but at the same time, we have to balance that with knowing where to draw the line when classroom behavior becomes disrespectful. And so, in other words, um, we want to respect all of our students' different opinions and you know, sort of their right to have their opinions, but we also wanna keep the classroom environment one that's respectful and safe for people with more marginalized identities. And so, for example, there's some things that students with relatively more privilege might say or do in class that could make that learning environment detrimental for students with relatively less privileged identities. And I think sorting this out, where to draw that line and what to do about it, really requires thoughtfulness and consultation amongst ourselves. So I'd really like to see us having more discussions about that. I think we need to listen to the more marginalized students and ask them what they've experienced and what they need. Um, and we need to be willing to hear the answer. It might not be something we're comfortable hearing, but we need to be willing to hear it. Um, so for example, I've heard sometimes from students of color that it doesn't feel good to them when maybe a racial stereotype or a microaggression occurs in class and none of the white people speak up and interrupt it. It's sort of left to them as people of color to be the ones to bring it up. So one thing I've done for myself is I'm trying um, when something like that does happen to be the white person that speaks up, at least be one of the white people that speaks up. And it's not easy and I don't always get it right and I don't even always notice when something's going on, but that's something I'm striving towards um, as something that's part of the solution. I think as faculty, um, we can role model this for each other and for our students. We need to be willing to acknowledge when we make a mistake. So that's part of any kind of a classroom dialogue about diversity is I think a lot of times we're worried about saying the wrong thing and we might say the wrong thing. We might say something that's offensive. We might say something that's harmful. Um, but if we do, we can listen to how that affected other people and we can acknowledge it. We can say, I'm sorry. We can say, I'm, I'm willing to work on doing better. And that right there, I really think is the tool that's going to move us forward in the 21st century to be multiculturally oriented. There's always opportunities to repair. There are, there are. I want to make our listeners aware of a book that Maureen, our Pre Maureen O'Connor, our president, brought to my attention entitled Teaching LGBTQ Psychology, Queering, Innovative Pedagogy and Practice by Burns and Stanley. It had a plethora of thought-provoking pedagogical approaches and techniques I think would be of value to many of our professors. Yeah, that is really a great resource. Um, it's a book that's aimed at um, specifically teaching LGBTQ psychology, but I think there are a lot of uh, techniques and ideas in there that could be useful um, more broadly speaking. I'm also currently reading um, an edited volume by Dr. Kim Case uh, about intersectional pedagogy that I think is also useful. And there are many other resources out there. It might be great for us to develop a resource list where we can all share those. That's, an, that's a fantastic idea. I'm going to take note of that. Uh, but interesting that you bring up Dr. Case. She's actually coming to PAU on mm -hmm. June 22nd for our evidence-based teaching conference. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about it. Her key keynote address will be focused on uh, intersectional pedagogy, and she will also be conducting a workshop on incorporating privilege and intersectionality into pedagogy. So, Terrific. I look forward to that. Yes, as do I. Moving on, I now have a two-part question for you in relation to teaching strategies. What are some of the pedagogical techniques you use in your own classroom 
to foster deeper understanding of LGBTQ communities. And the second question is definitely in line with our discussion of intersectionality. I'm curious what you do in your teaching to help generate greater awareness of how intersections of individual identities shape lived experiences of individuals. Yeah, great. So um, kind of going uh, from one of the last things I said about being afraid of saying the wrong thing, um, <clears throat> I tried out a new technique when I taught the LGBTQ issues in psychotherapy class um, about this, because I, I can't tell you how many times I've been giving a talk uh, in public about LGBTQ issues, and I ask the audience, does anyone have any questions? And nobody says anything. And I know, uh, we all know that people do have questions Absolutely. about, about uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, but I think people are afraid of saying the wrong thing. They're afraid of either looking like they don't know anything or offending somebody unwittingly with their statement. Um, so when I taught that class, I started out the class with a question box. Um, I had a shoe box. I, I had my 11-year-old daughter decorated it with rainbow flags. And, um, and I brought it in, and people could just anonymously um, put a question in there. Anything that comes to mind, anything you've always wanted to know about LGBTQ populations but you're afraid to ask. Um, and then I answered those. You know, and it kind of took away that stigma of being the one to ask the silly question or the potentially offensive question. And then I made that box available throughout the class. Mm -hmm. And I would sometimes tell people, even if you don't have a question, just scribble something on the index card that you're putting in there so that it didn't really highlight the people that did have a question. It made it even more anonymous, even in a small class. So I think that brought out some stuff that would have stayed buried otherwise, and I think it was really helpful. Um, I think another tool that's always helpful on these issues is to do some self-reflective exercises that make people critically examine their own gender and sexual identities. Um, so for example, in my LGBTQ class, uh, people looked at the Klein sexual orientation grid. It's an assessment and asked people to rate themselves in the past, present, and future on things like who are they sexually attracted to, but also who do they prefer to spend time with socially and who do they identify with? And so it really, you know, gives a multidimensional aspect to that idea of sexual orientation. And I think even for people who are heterosexual, cisgender, have never thought about this, just going through that self-reflective exercise can help them understand it better. There are also exercises like the privilege walk where you, you know, make statements about various privileges that are associated with identities and students take a step forward or a step back. And that can be tailored to learning about um, heterosexual privilege and cisgender privilege. Um, in fact, uh, the, um, the Burns and Stanley book that we mentioned yeah. before has some examples of that. Um, Along with this is this idea of making space for students to process what they're learning. So journal assignments or, you know, having students split into dyads or small groups and discussing things, having an online discussion board. I think anytime you're learning about LGBTQ issues, you have to give that space for students to process. Um, along with that, I think selective self-disclosure on the part of the instructor can be helpful. So I've kind of talked about my own sexual and gender identi identity development um, as an ongoing process. Um, I've also self-disclosed some of the key moments of learning for me as an ally to other marginalized groups. I think for our students, this helps to keep it real and, mm -hmm. and make it, you know, really tangible. And, oh, my professor is a person too who's also going through these processes. Um, 
And another thing we did in my LGBTQ class is there, I had an assignment um, that was worth some points where students were supposed to go out sometime in the quarter and go in the community and participate in some kind of in-person activity. So it could have been going to a community center or attending the pride celebration, um, going to a support group or going to a lecture, really anything out there in the LGBT community. Um, and then they had to just reflect on it and tell the class about it. And I think that can be done with other cultural groups too. Again, getting outside of those four walls of the classroom and into diverse communities. Um, Absolutely. I, I love film festivals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> film festivals yeah. are great for that. I think film festivals, um, theater is another mm -hmm. good one, um, but there's so many different kind of events. And then I think um, that practical tools are important. Sometimes I hear students say, well, we talk about diversity in theory, but what does that look like, mm -hmm. you know, when you're in the room with the client? And so I think we do need to work more on breaking these things down. So, you know, for example, um, in my LGBTQ class, one of the things I did is I presented questions a client might ask about sexual orientation and then had students do some research um, about, you know, what's been published about this, what does the literature say, and then figure out how do you translate that into layperson's language so that you could actually answer your client's question about the research, an empirically based statement, um, but in language that a layperson could understand. Um, another thing we did is I had students come up with better intake questions on an intake form that would be LGBTQ affirmative. How would you ask about gender? These are real tools that students can take out there into their practica. You know, you might be working at a practicum that doesn't have LGBTQ affirmative questions on their intake form and you could offer that advice. Um, I think these tools can really help our students to improve the lives of marginalized people. Absolutely, all really great suggestions. Thanks, um, and I think you wanted me to also answer about the, the second part was about um, our, in terms of how do we generate intersectional awareness uh, among, um, among our students. So I think one thing is to continually complicate things. I want to highlight the word complicate um, mm -hmm. when we teach about identities, um, and especially if we're teaching about one dimension of identity. So for example, let's say I'm lecturing um, about assessments and about how some assessments are gender norms, and so how would those apply to transgender clients. So I need to make sure in that lecture that I'm not reducing it down to just the gender identity. I need to make sure that I bring up things like racial and ethnic bias in assessment, or language barriers to completing assessments for somebody who's an immigrant. And remember that all of those identities apply to transgender people as clients too. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's also a lot to be learned, intersectionally speaking, from listening to people's individual stories. Because as I said in the beginning of the podcast, everybody's story is this complex web of intersectional identities. Nobody's story is just about one dimension. So I really encourage my students um, to read fiction, read fiction, you know, by, uh, written by and written about um, people with all kinds of diverse identities. Um, I encourage them to read autobiographies or poetry or even watch feature or documentary films that 
include these perspectives of people who have identities that are different from our own. And I think we have a lot we can learn from that outside the field of psychology. Um, one of my students, Dottie Gill, just uh, worked with me to compile a list of documentary films on LGBTQ populations. So we're working on disseminating that and getting that up on our webpage um, so that people can look at that. Um, podcasts, I know we're on a podcast, podcast right now. Um, and there are just, you know, a plethora of podcasts out there that are sort of from the perspective of people with all kinds of different identities. And I think really approaching all of these materials with respect and humility um, can make them really great learning tools. Um, I think one more thing that I want to say about uh, bringing intersectionality into the classroom is that we just, we need to encourage our students um, as psychologists in training to keep up with current events, right? There's so much going on. You mentioned before just the current um, socio-political climate and everything that's going on in our world right now. Um, a lot of this is really relevant to the populations we serve. And so mm -hmm. if our students and if we aren't at least aware of some of these events, we really can't help people that are coming to us as clients to deal with the psychological fallout from them. Thank you, such great <laughs> information that you just provided and a lot of practical tools that many of us can use in our own classrooms. So it's been such a fruitful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, as we wrap up the episode, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, um, first of all, I hope this podcast is helpful in just moving the needle a little bit on diversity issues. Um, I really feel like we have a moral and ethical imperative to keep pushing ourselves to do better. I really appreciate working at PAU and working in a university community and an institution that values um, diversity. And I really wanna see us keep pushing ourselves beyond our comfort zones um, so that we can continue to do better on this. Um, I think for me, one of the most powerful quotes that I've been sitting with and working with um, comes from the writer and scholar Audre Lorde, who said, the true focus of revolutionary change is never merely the oppressive situations that we seek to escape, but that, that piece of the oppressor, which is planted deep within each of us. I think this is important. I think we really need to keep this in mind. It's not an us and them mm -hmm. situation. I think sometimes we talk about it like, oh, well, we're, you know, the good people. We're working on diversity over here. Those people over there aren't. And it's really not about that. It's really about all of us. We're all people. We're all working to understand how oppressive forces have shaped all of us. Um, we're all capable of saying and doing things that are oppressive and we're all capable of experiencing oppression ourselves. And I think if we can really look at all of this in a more nuanced way, we can really become better psychologists and better members of our communities. Fantastic. Thank you again so much for your time, Kimberly. I, I appreciate all the valuable insight you have given our listeners today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was uh, a great opportunity to be in this podcast series, um, and I really look forward to future dialogues uh, with faculty and students about these important topics. This concludes episode two of the Teaching at PAU podcast. Please join us next time for another conversation from the riveting world of pedagogy.